welcome to the Footancy Thinking Global podcast. In this podcast, we look at different jurisdictions and industries and explore the opportunities that exist in the global marketplace. My name is Lingzi Wang, and I will be your host together with my colleague, Carl Bradford. Lingzi and I are members of the International Committee here at Fodansti, and we work on cross-border transactions that involve inbound and outbound investment with the UK. In this series, we will be speaking with different subject matter experts on the innovations occurring in the UK across various industries and their importance internationally. Now, in this new episode three, we will be speaking with Imam Kazi, who leads the Futansi Islamic Finance team, covering all areas of Islamic finance and ethical investment transactions. We'll be looking at some of the most interesting developments in this sector in the UK and also internationally, and also the opportunities to grow this sector in the near future. So welcome, Imam, to this podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted uh, to be here and to participate. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So to begin with, can you please just tell us how you got involved in the Islamic finance sector? Yes, of course. In terms of my sort of personal journey towards um, Islamic finance, thinking back, it probably started when I was at university and I had a bit of an academic interest in Sharia um, or Islamic law. I did find it quite interesting, the similarities and differences between Islamic law um, and English law. and was surprised to learn and understand there were actually lots of things which were very similar and very able to work together very effectively. My study of Sharia or my interest in Sharia was always something a little bit kind of extracurricular. Um, And I began my journey as a first a trainee solicitor and then a solicitor in a a large regional firm focused on commercial property. And during that time, you know, my interest in things to do with Sharia was was still there, but it was quite separate from my day-to-day work. But what happened in the the mid-2000s was that I wanted to get get on a housing ladder, as you do when you're kind of a young professional. And uh, I wasn't happy to get a conventional mortgage and found that there were sort of Islamic mortgage alternatives that were just beginning to emerge. So that kind of piqued my interest, both from a personal perspective in terms of helping me to um, transact, but also from a professional perspective, as I kind of saw the potential there for the legal requirements connected to Islamic finance transactions. So as a result of that, I began to study um, Islamic finance, went on some courses, got some qualifications, and gradually built up an Islamic finance practice over the last, um, I guess, 15 to 20 years. Fast forward now, we're now at, uh, at Fertansti. I've been here about 12 years, and we are one of the largest Islamic finance practices in the UK, if not globally, um, and we're a tier one practice nationally. So yeah, it's been it's been a fascinating journey and yeah, one that uh, I would definitely do again. Thank you, Imam, for giving us that background. And um, obviously from what you said, it sounds like the Islamic finance industry has been growing very rapidly, uh, not only in the UK, but also internationally. But just for some of those listeners who may be not familiar with the terminology, could you briefly summarise what is actually meant by Islamic finance? Yeah, absolutely. Be delighted to uh, appreciate it's a phrase that can have misconceptions attached to it. So yeah, happy to bust those and explain what we mean when we say Islamic finance. Behind your question, there are a few other um, issues in terms of the basis of Islamic finance and the Sharia principles. So I'll touch on those as well. And you also mentioned the growth of the Islamic finance sector globally. So I'll, I'll talk a bit about that as well. But yeah, going back to the, uh, you know, what is Islamic finance? I 
tend to think of it in two ways, both a, a very narrow descriptive definition, but also a broader definition. So from a narrow definition perspective, Islamic finance is a means of providing finance in accordance with Sharia principles. So to, to kind of unpick that, what do I mean by Sharia principles? So Sharia is a, is a body of law, also known as Islamic law, and it has its sources in the Quran, which was revealed to Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, 1400 years ago. That's kind of the primary source. The secondary source is the teachings and sayings of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And then there are also additional sources, such as things that you can draw from analogy or from consensus, because a consensus of people um, in a particular area at a particular time or, or of particular learned individuals. So from these sources, we then derive principles, Sharia principles, which are used by Muslims across the world in terms of how they act in terms of their personal worship, but also in terms of how they interact with each other and how they interact between communities as well. So those Sharia principles, one of those relates directly to financing. And there's a particular rule, uh, which some listeners may or may not be aware of, is the prohibition on paying or charging interest. That's known as uh, riba. That prohibition means that although you can provide a loan, if you do provide a loan, you can get nothing in return for it. So there's nothing wrong with an interest-free loan or a benevolent loan, as, as, as we call it. But if there's a financier who wants to make a profit out of a financing transaction, then a loan mechanism does not work. And we therefore go into the realms of using different structures to allow participation into an asset or support of a venture. So that Islamic finance, those types of structures would include, um, for example, private equity type structures, where instead of lending money to a company, you would invest in that company and you share in the profits and in the losses of that company, its businesses or its ventures. Other structures involve assets. So instead of lending money for somebody to buy an asset, the Islamic bank, um, in this case, would instead buy the asset and then sell it to the customer at an increased price, a cost plus financing. Or another structure is that the bank would acquire the asset and then provide a lease to the customer of that asset. So it becomes like a lease financing structure. So Islamic finance, basically the narrow definition means those structures that are used in place of conventional finance for Islamic banks to earn a return on their participation in asset or business activities. More broadly, Islamic finance is used as a description of the um, halal economy or the interaction between individuals and businesses and between various businesses. So it's the connection that individuals have when they wish to invest into something or buy something or enter into any kind of trading arrangement to make it in accordance with Sharia. So anything that has a Sharia implication to it, we call kind of Islamic finance in the in a broader sense. So it's narrowly in terms of financing from banks to companies or individuals to provide financing, but more broadly, it's the whole sort of business ecosystem for Islamic finance. At the beginning of your question, you talked about sort of the growth of um, the Islamic finance industry, and that very much is the case. And that growth is driven in two respects. Firstly, by the demand for Islamic finance. So particularly in the UK, but also globally, there's a an increasingly wealthy, quite a young Muslim population 
and they're increasingly interested and aware of the Sharia issues around finance and investing. So that creates a grassroots demand for Islamic finance, which is driving the growth of the industry. There is also supply side growth in terms of the parts of the world which are very liquid at the moment. So, for example, in the Middle East, where oil prices is driving a lot of liquidity, where those institutional individuals who have that money wish to invest it or to provide financing to people, but they want to do so in accordance with Sharia. Therefore, it means there is, in some cases, an abundance of liquidity ready to be deployed in the UK market, but on the Sharia compliant terms, which means that you have Islamic banks providing financing to the regular UK customers who are just looking for financing, but it's coming from Islamic banks because of the liquidity in those markets. So the growth story is both supply and demand driven. It's it's quite a rosy story in terms of the growth. What we're seeing with the Islamic finance market is that there is annual growth of between sort of 10 and 15%, I would say, globally. And the UK has a has a very large slice of that. You've mentioned a few jurisdictions, but but mainly uh, the UK. So is the UK a key jurisdiction for the Islamic finance sector? Or are there other international jurisdictions that are relevant in this space um, that are growing? Yeah, you're right to point out the UK as a very significant global centre. And I'll explain in a moment how it has got to that position and why it's in that position. But in terms of globally, the other parts of the world which are very active in Islamic finance are as it would come as no surprise, those parts of the world where there are large Muslim populations. So the Middle East is the main one. And we've seen, you know, Dubai, Bahrain, Doha to an extent, and now Saudi getting very active in developing financial centres to promote um, Islamic finance. And then in terms of Asia, I would say, uh, and more broadly globally, Malaysia has taken a big lead in terms of the innovations around developing the Islamic finance market products and infrastructure. So I would say in terms of the rest of the the world, I would say the UK is leading by example, but there are moves in Europe to sort of get on the bandwagon and Luxembourg in particular has made a a big push to become a global centre. And then New York with its global finance credentials also has an important part to play in that. In terms of bringing it home to here in the UK, the growth of Islamic finance in the UK has been really supported by successive UK governments since the the early 2000s. And the reasoning for that is to promote London as a global financial centre, but also it's to do with looking at the UK Muslim population and trying to get them more enfranchised into the economic system. So by providing solutions to financing and um, needs from a Sharia compliant perspective, it has helped to bring those Muslims in the UK into the mainstream economy. And the way in which the government has done that over these successive years has primarily been through addressing the tax and regulatory challenges facing Islamic finance in the UK. Because the way Islamic finance works, as I sort of mentioned earlier, it tends to involve replacing a loan transaction with a trading or a leasing or an investment transaction. And when you do that, it can have adverse tax consequences. So if, for example, in the property example I mentioned, where instead of a bank lending money to somebody to buy a property, the bank are going to be buying that property and granting a lease to the customer. And then the customer is buying that property back as well as paying lease on a a shared ownership basis. That would have adverse 
stamp duty land tax consequences because instead of having just one purchase transaction, you've now got to purchase a lease and a repurchase. So potentially three times as much stamp duty land tax. So the government has, in order to promote Islamic finance and create a level playing field, they've enacted a legislation within the Finance Acts, and they do so each year by updating it, in that there's an alternative finance section which seeks to remove those barriers and address what would otherwise be unfair tax treatment affecting um, Islamic finance. And so by doing so, they've actually been seen as kind of very progressive and globally has attracted lots of interest in terms of a way of catering for Islamic financing and bringing it into the mainstream. And one thing I wanted to pick up on as well was you've mentioned a few times about the key principles of Sharia and how they fit in in the wider context. It sounds to me that there's some strong links there with ethical finance, and we're seeing obviously an increase in the interest in, say, ESG. So it would be interesting to get your take on the the links between sort of Islamic finance and ethical finance. Um, in terms of the sort of Sharia principles, which I sort of touched on earlier, um, if I just maybe explain those a little bit further, and then you can see the sort of natural overlap with ethical finance. So the principles of which I mentioned of, of riba, for example, the idea of, of prohibiting riba is to prevent the wealthy from exploiting those who are in need. So it creates a, an environment where helping people is more important than you know, making a profit out of other people's misery. Just as a reminder, Imam, to the listeners who are not maybe familiar with Sharia terms, by riba, um, would in a sort of conventional financing terms, would that be seen similar to charging interest? Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's any gain that's made by one party as a result of lending money to another party. So even if I charged you a fixed fee for lending you that money, you know, that would be deemed interest. Or if I gave you some other kind of favours, that would all be um, riba from a, a Sharia perspective, and that is not liked. But the principles that go beyond that are things around sort of the requirement for certainty within contracts. So there can't be any vagueness when two parties are entered into. So that the idea there is that you're protecting people by understanding with a high degree of certainty what you're entering into when you're entering into an agreement. And there are also broader principles in Sharia around the idea of facilitating ease or promoting things that have public benefit. Because the idea of Sharia is not to make lives more difficult, but it's actually to help people to carry out their lives in a way which is helpful to them, but also productive to broader society. And where something has a public benefit, then that has the ability to become part of the Sharia just by virtue of the fact that there are some natural benefits in it. And the other kind of very relevant principle is the concept of stewardship. So, you know, as human beings on this planet, one of our primary purposes is to look after the planet and look after the people in it and do things which are for the benefit of others, and not just for ourselves. So you can therefore see that the closeness between those sort of principles and general ethical principles are pretty obvious. And therefore, there is lots of natural overlap between um, Islamic finance on the one hand and ESG principles on the other. Yeah, thanks, Imam. Um, so just obviously drawing on this overlap you've identified between um, the principles of Sharia and ethical finance, such as, for example, you said the um, prohibition exploitation, public benefit and stewardship, which obviously 
for listeners who are familiar with ethical finance are probably things that ethical businesses are also putting in their literature as well. Um, have businesses in the Sharia financing or Islamic finance sphere use the terms Sharia compliant and ethical compliance interchangeably? Are these kind of terminologies that are used by businesses in that way? Yeah, I mean, that, that reminds me, actually. So there is a, a business that we work with and we've known quite well over the years, which um, used to be branded uh, simply Sharia. So it's a financial services business which looks to offer Sharia compliant solutions to individuals and businesses who need investment solutions or financing solutions. And they recently rebranded to Simply Ethical, which on the one hand, you might think, oh, well, that's just kind of a marketing ploy to get kind of a a broader market acceptance of their ideas. But really, the idea of that just change of terminology from Sharia to ethical, I believe what it does, it moves to a term which is better understood more widely. Because if you use a term like Sharia, then it has all sorts of connotations um, and implications which people will not fully understand. Whereas where you use a simple term like ethical, that's just immediately understood. And it has certain connotations which really connect it well. And I think there is definitely a move towards within the Islamic finance industry and, and sector generally to move away from necessarily stressing the Sharia compliance or Islamic nature of transactions and just explaining the underlying transaction as something which is ethically founded that's a positive thing because it's clearer in terms of what it is and it makes people understand that islamic finance isn't something unique which is you know just for muslims it's just a a slightly different way of operating based on ethical and sort of sound commercial principles thank you that's obviously a very um, positive development going forward But I suppose there has been recently some criticism about businesses who have used the ethical and ESG label. And I guess the term greenwashing has come into a lot of headlines about, for example, I'm thinking of some investment funds that marked themselves as being ESG. But once people actually looked into what they were actually investing in, there was a question mark about whether that was actually genuinely ESG. Is there a similar challenge that's faced by Islamic finance as well with something like that? Yeah, I guess those challenges exist everywhere. The the advantage that um, Islamic finance has is there's a bit of rigour in terms of the compliance that the Islamic finance institutions have to adhere to. So where I talked about previously about the, the structuring requirements, you know, where you're buying an asset and granting a lease or you're participating uh, through equity rather than through debt, I'll describe that as like the first layer of compliance, but there's also a second layer of compliance, which looks at the broader principles in terms of what is the overall impact of what you are doing on society or between the parties. So is there fairness there? Is there any undue influence going on? Is there any exploitation going on? You know, another way of looking at that is if, you know, you come up with a property financing structure, which is perfectly Sharia compliant, but then you then use that product to acquire a casino which again offends one of the other Sharia principles, then that would not be permitted. The advantage I was mentioning, which Islamic finance has maybe over some other ESG participators, is that they are controlled or advised by a supervisory board. So normally, in addition to a board of directors that a company would have and the usual regulatory oversight it might have from the FCA or PRA, There would also be a Sharia supervisory board, 
And what that does is it looks at the activities of the company, both from a technical perspective in terms of what it's doing, but also on the impact of what that company is having. So there is that kind of built in monitoring of what these businesses are doing to ensure that they are sort of meeting the requirements. Um, and I would just mention that, you know, there is kind of real teeth to some of this in that, for example, when, where I say from the summit finance perspective, you cannot charge interest. If you enter into a financing arrangement and a customer is late in making payments, then it still applies that the bank can't charge interest on those late payments. And even if you go and get a court judgment, you know, you're entitled to court interest. You know, the banks have to waive that court interest. And the way the banks deal with this to make sure there's an incentive for clients to pay on time is that they have a concept of late payment fees. But from those late payment fees, they can only actually take their actual costs and the remainder of those have to be donated to charity. So so there is some real kind of substance, I would say, behind the claims of ESG credentials when it comes to um, Islamic finance. It certainly sounds like it's a, a very vigorous screen that is applied. Obviously, we spent a lot of time talking about the finance industry. But at the beginning, you did touch upon the um, halal economy as obviously you know, being the broader part of what you treat as being part of Islamic finance. Could we just take a moment to talk about what the opportunities of the growth of the wider halal economy and whether there's actually opportunities there in that growth to actually assist and help achieve the targets of sustainability and ESG that we've been touching on? That's a really good question. I think... Um... It kind of goes back in a way to what I was saying previously around the demand side growth for Islamic finance. And that extends really to the broader halal economy. So where you've got a, a young and increasingly wealthy um, and educated Muslim population, both in the UK and globally, then, you know, their needs in terms of food and clothing and cosmetics and tourism, they are, you know, wanting to buy goods and services you know, in accordance with their their values, whether that's specifically Sharia issues or more broadly the concerns for the for the environmental and social impact of things, that's definitely um, increasing. So the growth of the halal economy is very much part of the growth of conscious ethical consumers. Um, you know, an, an example might be that with you know meat consumption, there's a big argument that you know we shouldn't be eating too much meat because of the damaged environment. That's something that's sort of taking hold more and more. But even where consumers, uh, Muslim consumers, are going to their, their usual halal butchers to get their meat, you know, you're increasingly seeing you know, organic products and alternatives and sort of fair, fair trade type arrangements and options. So, yeah, there's there's definitely a big growth in halal economy, growth in ethical consumption, and a lot of overlap between the two. Unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap this podcast up soon, but uh, I'd just like to finish with a question that we ask all of our guests in this series. So, Imam, what would you like to see in the next few years in this sector? And are there any particular interesting areas that you are excited about? Yeah, I mean, I think there's quite a lot going on and there's quite a lot to be excited about. I think the one area I would just touch on uh, sort of by way of conclusion would be to talk about fintech. So that's sort of financial technology. And three areas in particular. One is the use of fintech by Islamic finance institutions to deliver their products um, in a much more user-friendly and efficient way. So, you know, being able to get an Islamic mortgage via an app by making a few clicks or to clear your sort of KYC requirements by taking a picture of yourself and just pressing submit um, rather than all of the clunky procedures that currently exist when in the sort of finance and investment space. So 
that's sort of one part where I think financial technology is, is making an impact and will make things more productive for everyone going forward. The other area where we as a, as a firm have been quite involved in is the rise of peer-to-peer financing. So that's where instead of going to a large institution to get financing, you know, you, you put your your financing needs onto a platform and tens or hundreds or even thousands of people then participate in that and then they share in the rewards from that. So that sort of peer-to-peer platform development, I think, is is another key area that is very much supported by fintech. And then I guess the third aspect of fintech, which is quite exciting, is the, the opening up of capital market and institutional products, which normally would only be available to institutions or very sophisticated investors is now becoming available to to retail consumers through fintech platforms. So yeah, a lot to be excited about. Yeah, fintech in particular is is the big one, I would say. Thanks, Imam. There seem to be so many interesting developments in this sector, both in the UK and in other jurisdictions. Unfortunately, we are going to have to wrap it up there, but thank you very much, Imam. Thank you, Carl and Lindsay. It was um, great to be part of this podcast and I look forward to um, joining you again on another one soon. Uh, well, thanks, Mom, obviously, for joining us on this podcast and giving us your uh, valuable insights into obviously the um, Islamic finance sector and the opportunities that lie ahead in the UK and globally. We look forward to inviting you back uh, in a future episode, to obviously, to discuss new developments in this constantly evolving industry. And if any listeners have any questions about today's episode or would like to discuss further, please leave your comments in the comment section or send either Carl or myself an email. And if you have enjoyed listening to the show, please do rate, review and subscribe. And until next time, goodbye.